0: Welcome to LeGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to Hospitality and Hostility by Reverend Peter Yonker. The Bible reading that's in your um, in your bulletins is wrong, and that's I'm almost sure that's my fault. It's not Matthew five; it's Matthew chapter ten, verses one through eight that we'll be meditating on together today, and that's found on page fifteen fourteen in your pew bibles and not 1505. We continue our series on hospitality and what I want to focus on today are the people that Jesus chooses to call to himself. I want to focus on that community, that small group of disciples and what kind of community it is. And uh, this passage, which represents the calling of the disciples, is a great place to do that. Listen. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any other town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, Freely you have received, freely give. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, today I want to look at that list of names. Really the, the main topic of my sermon, the main focus of my sermon, my text, is just the names and the kind of people that Jesus chooses to call to himself when he calls his 12. And you've heard sermons on this before, and usually when ministers preach on the 12, the thing that they like to, to focus on is uh, how unremarkable they are. Uh, not since the, uh, the 2019 Detroit Tigers has there been such an unremarkable lineup. <laughs> so we preachers like to make, make that point and it's true and, and we like to say, look, if God can use these people, he can use anyone, he can use you. And that's a true point, and that's a good sermon, but that's not what I want to talk about today. Today, I want to look at a different feature of that list. What I want you to notice is that as as those names are listed by Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, most of the names listed are just simply the names or maybe the family connections of the 12 apostles. But then there are three names that get a little extra biographical detail. That little bit of extra biographical detail is interesting and it's significant. It has a message. One of the three who gets a little extra biographical detail is Judas, of course. He's the one who betrays Jesus. That is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. That's really important. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the other two who get a little extra. The first of those is Simon the Zealot. Why does Matthew want to tell us, not just Simon's name, but that he is the zealot? What is a zealot? Well, depending upon your political perspective, depending on where you stand, a zealot uh, is a terrorist. There are all kinds of political persuasions in Jesus' time. Well, there's a wide spectrum of political beliefs, just as there are today. And most of those political beliefs um, sort of fan themselves out over your opinion about the Romans, who were occupying at the time. So some people say on this side of the political spectrum, tolerated the Romans, worked with the Romans, had contracts with the Romans, made money with the Romans. Sadducees were sort of over on this side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum were those who absolutely hated the Romans, detested the Romans, fought the Romans, sometimes with violence. The Zealots were the people over here. The ones who fought the Romans with everything they had. The Zealots took their name from the story of Phineas. That's a story, a biblical story not well known. A biblical story you can find in Numbers 25. And in that story, Phineas is repeatedly called someone who was full of the zeal of the Lord. How did that zeal get manifest? Well, one day Phineas was walking through the camp of Israel, and he caught a Hebrew man named Zimri in an embrace with a Midianite woman, which was forbidden by the law, of course. You weren't supposed to intermingle. And he was so full of the zeal of the Lord, of righteous anger, that he took a spear and he killed both of them at once and he is praised for his zeal. The Zealots absolutely approved of Phineas, not only his zeal, but his means. They thought that anyone who was still collaborating with the Romans, who was working with the Romans was like a modern-day Zimri, and deserved to be shish-kebobbed. The fiercest of the Zealots were the Sicarii. The Sicarii were a group of men who would like to go around dressed in long robes. And inside of these long, voluminous robes, they would hide long, thin knives. Sike, that's what they got their name from. And they would find men who they knew were doing business with the Romans, who were collaborating with the Romans. They would find them in crowded marketplaces, sneak up behind them, and stick them with those knives, assassinate them, and then flee into the night, and no one would ever find them. As you can imagine... Anyone who was doing any kind of work with the Romans was absolutely terrified of the Sicarii. And there's still a well-known group today. If you remember, in 2015, there was a movie called Sicario. It was about a Mexican hitman. The name, the word Sicario is the, la, is the Spanish word for hitman. And that derives from the Sicarii, these assassins. So the zealots, these men with the knives, those are Simon's people. I'm not saying he was an assassin. I'm not saying he carried a long knife in his robes. But I am saying he almost certainly approved of those who did. So he's someone way out here in the political spectrum when it came to how to deal with Rome. It's one of the men who gets a little extra detail. Who's the other one left? Matthew. What is Matthew called? The tax collector. If Simon is over here on the political spectrum, where do you think Matthew is? Where do you think a tax collector fits? He's as far over on this side as you can get. Not only is he working with the Romans, he's not just got a contract to sell beans to the Romans, he's collecting their taxes. He's going to the Jewish people and taking their money on behalf of an occupying army, and he's skimming off the top. Tax collectors were absolutely detested, especially by the zealots, a tax collector would have been one of the prime targets for the Sakari and their long knives. Okay? So into Jesus 12, into his small group, Simon and Matthew. Do you think that was a mistake? Do you think if someone had come up to Jesus and said, you know, Jesus, you got to understand, these two guys, they're not going to fit in the same small group. You're not going to have good group cohesion with those two. Do you think if someone had come up to Jesus and said that to him, he would have chosen different people? I don't think so. I think Jesus knew absolutely what he was doing when he chose the terrorist and the tax collector. Jesus chose the terrorist and the tax collector on purpose. Jesus chose the terrorist and the tax collector to show what kind of community he was trying to found in his church, among his people. Jesus chose the terrorist and the tax collector to show that he was a person who had come to this world to destroy the power of sin and the power of division. The power of division. We know a little bit about that. You turn on your TV and watch a little news. You read some social commentary online and read the comments, and the power of division in our society is palpable. We're not stabbing each other with long knives yet, but there's a steady escalation in the things that we're willing to say and the things that we're willing to do to shout down a person who thinks differently or who is different from us. And when you watch the news or when you read something online, this isn't just something you see, this is something you feel, right? You feel the division. You feel its power. You feel it escalating. And you start to have this sort of overwhelmed sense like, wow, do we have any common ground left? What I want you to see today is that when you have that feeling, When you're watching the news, when you're reading something, you have that feeling of, oh my goodness, what you are feeling is the power of sin. You're feeling the power of division and the power of sin. In the Bible, sin is not just a collection of misdeeds, okay? To sum up the sin in your life, it would not be sufficient for me to make a ledger, to make an enormous Excel spreadsheet and find everything you'd ever done wrong and just list it. That would not sum up the power of sin in your life. Sin is not just discrete misdeeds. Sin in Scripture is a power that oppresses, that takes people over, that menaces people. That's how Paul talks about sin. Especially in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. He says that sin can rule over you. 6 verse 16 talks about how people are enslaved by sin. Sin holds us captive and we need to be set free. Romans 3 verse 9, he talks about how sin has been something that that has held everyone captive. We've been under its power. So it's not just discrete individual acts, it's, it's a power and you can feel this power. When you meet a person who's in the grip of addiction, to alcohol, or to pornography, a friend of yours. And you meet them and you talk to them and they say, there's nothing more in the world they want to do but to escape this addiction. And they say it with tears and you can tell they mean it. You can tell they feel it. And yet they still can't escape. What you're sensing in that conversation, what you're feeling, is the power of sin. When you meet a soldier who's been in combat and has been so traumatized by what he's seen in combat that he has what they call moral injury. His, even his sense of self has started to shatter because of what he's seen and what he's been through. What you're seeing, what you're feeling when you're meeting that person is power of sin. And when you turn on your television and see the division that's in our society and feel it like a weight on your chest, that weight is the power of sin. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin. That's why he got those two very different men from extreme sides of the political spectrum together and put them in his small group to show that he was there to break the power of division between people. What Jesus did by bringing Matthew and Simon into the same set of disciples is the purpose that he makes explicit in Ephesians chapter 2, 15 and 16. Listen. His purpose, God's purpose, Christ's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, to bring these people together. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, that's where the power comes from, by which he put to death their hostility. He put to death their hostility. Again, right? It's not accounting language. It's combat language. Jesus comes to destroy sin and its power and destroy division and its power. So of course he calls the tax collector on purpose. Of course he calls the terrorist on purpose. He will do that by bringing these two guys together and making them learn to live with each other But more than that, he will bring them together by spreading out his arms on the cross, taking into himself all of the hatred, all of the long knives of our division into himself and returning it with grace and returning it with new life, destroying sin's power. What's the result of that? Well, not very long after they're called, Matthew and Simon find themselves at dinner together. They're sitting around a table. The twelve are there. I imagine them sitting right beside each other. You know, they got placed right beside each other at the table. And Jesus, of course, is at the head. He's just gone around and he's washed everyone's feet. Now he stands up and he holds out bread and he said, this is my body and it's for you. They pass it around and Matthew passes it to Simon and they both take and they both eat. And then Jesus holds up a, a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And He hands it around and this time Simon passes it to Matthew and they both drink. The two men smile at each other and the terrorist and the tax collector are now brothers in Jesus Christ. Do you think that means that they always agreed with each other? Do you think that means that now their politics and their opinions were exactly the same now? I I highly doubt it. I'm sure they've changed. They're not here anymore. They're somewhere else. But I'm sure they had different social opinions and political opinions. But those didn't matter as much because they had a deeper union in Jesus Christ, their Lord. That's the kind of community our Lord is creating when he calls those two men. The story of the tax collector and the terrorist reminds us what kind of community that we're we're called to be. And that's a different kind of community because most communities uh, are based on common interest, right? We tend to affiliate with people who have similar interests from us. We're drawn to them. Uh, We call those affinity groups. And there's nothing wrong with affinity groups. We try to build affinity groups within a church. We have a softball team. We have a golf league. Those are affinity groups. They're good. But this... Is not an affinity group. You are not an affinity group. You belong to Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit's in you. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is moving people who are different towards one another. So in this community, you should expect to find yourself next to someone who thinks differently than you, who votes differently than you, who has different reactions emotional to different emotional reactions from you. You should expect to find yourself next to those people and you should expect that you will be pushed together. And when we, in this community, practice hospitality, when we intentionally move towards each other in our differences, we're not just being nice. We are instruments of the Holy Spirit putting to death hostility. Hostility. A grave is a church with lots of differences. Not many uh, racial differences, unfortunately, I think. That's simply true. But when you measure uh, politics and social opinions, if you take any important issue of the day, I've been here six years, I, now know people, uh, I know people well enough that on any social issue I can list two names from this congregation who have opposing, radically opposing views, okay? That's just reality. And sometimes when I consider all that, I think, oh no, how, how are we going to hold this together? How can we all be one in Christ? This is never going to work. Those are human thoughts, and those are bad days for me. But When I picture Matthew and Simon sitting together at that table, and when I picture Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished, then I know that this unity is not something I create. This unity is something that already is. It already exists. We are one in Christ. We haven't worked out the details yet, and he will have to finish the job, but we are one in Christ whether we manifest it or not. It reminds me of something that Linda Nagel used to say. Linda Nagel passed away last winter and uh, I did her funeral, and in the funeral planning, we talked a little bit about Linda, and one of the things that Linda said when she was, people were getting too cantankerous and unkind with each other in church, she would say, you know, you really, you really should be nicer to that person, you could be bunkmates in heaven. And <laughs> that raises a lot of theological questions, not least of which is bunk beds? We get bunk beds in heaven? I wanted a mansion. What's going on here? Pushing that question to the side, the central truth of what Linda said is irrefutable and stands as strong in the cross in the middle, as strong as the cross in the middle of this sanctuary. We are one in Christ and we will be reconciled in him. I don't know if any of you will be bunkmates in heaven, but I know that you'll all be table mates today. And the Lord will gather his family around this table and hold out his body and blood again, and we will be one. So come to this table. Taste the unity that you have in Jesus Christ your Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this testimony of unity and your power over our division that is so much stronger and bigger than what we can muster ourselves. Father, when we're on our own resources and we think of the divisions, we go limp. But when we see you and your son, we find the strength to hope again. Lord, send us out into this world as hopeful people and help us to find a few people out there who are different than us and help us to break down a few walls. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.